You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And today we're going to talk about a very important topic. Um, We are going to discuss what are the protections in place that we have for human subjects research participants. So before we get into this topic today, we just wanted to give a shout out to our Jane of all trades, Montana Mullins, who is our editor, our producer, our website manager. Um, She does everything for us and she works behind the scenes. She has no formal training in any of these areas, nor do we, by the way. (laughs) And she, (laughs) she just, you know, always rises to the occasion and she's just so incredible. We could not do this without her. So Thank you so, so much, Montana, for all that you do for us and for the pod. Seriously. I mean, we wouldn't have merch on the site. We wouldn't have all of the website links added. You know, there would be nothing without her. Right. And who would edit out all of our awkward ums and (laughs) (laughs) blunders, Andrea, when we record? Thank you. And also worth mentioning that this is our 21st episode of the pod. So the pod is officially of legal drinking age (laughs) in the United States. And so, Montana, we raise our glass to you. Cheers, and thank you all that you do for us. So before we before we tackle today's topic, uh, let's do a little recap of what we discussed last week. Andrea, can you... Can you do that for us? Sure. So last week we discussed um, why we've been able to develop a vaccine for COVID-19, but we haven't been successful in developing a vaccine for HIV, which has been, um, you know, identified for almost 40 years now. And so we talked about some of the very key differences between the different types of viruses. So as we mentioned, SARS-CoV-2 is in the coronavirus family, whereas HIV is in the retrovirus family. We discussed the concept that not all viruses are equal, just like not all animals are equal, and some very key distinctions that make HIV more challenging to target. Um, And some of those are, of course, the fact that it mutates very quickly, so that makes finding an appropriate vaccine candidate challenging. Um, We talked about the fact that it actually infects our immune cells and it destroys our immune system, which, of course, when you need a potent immune response to have a vaccine, Again, that's another challenge. Um, We talk about how we never actually mount immunity to HIV, which, you know, is the goal of a vaccine. It's mimicking natural immunity. So in a virus that you don't develop that, again, another challenge. Um, And then we finally talked about the fact that the antigens on the virus of HIV um, look very similar to human proteins. So that becomes a challenge with finding an appropriate vaccine target. So it's pretty dense. Uh, we encourage you to tune into that and, and learn more about um, developing a vaccine for HIV. And Andrew, you know, 
We get that question all the time. You know, people seem suspicious that we have this this vaccine for 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 SARS-CoV-2, um, but not for uh, for other viruses and diseases. So you did such an amazing job walking through that. Thank you so so much. Okay, so just to set the stage here, we want to acknowledge that. We recognize that there's a big issue um, of distrust of science and of the medical establishment among certain subpopulations, and uh, in particular among persons of color. Uh, and this absolutely has to be addressed. So we've we've received some questions about you know what protections are in place for for human research subjects. How how can I know that I'm that I'm protected? And so we thought that we needed. I mean, we, really, we could do several episodes on this topic, but we just want to start the conversation and set the stage. So to start this conversation, we have to talk about some historical examples, um, frankly, of injustices that were committed in the name of medical research. And, you know, some of the things that we're going to describe are pretty uncomfortable, Um pretty disgusting. And really the, the takeaway is that they are horrific, but they the only silver lining is that they prompted some really stringent regulations and protections for, for human subjects and research. So yeah. I, I would say this is our, our trigger warning to, to people yeah. who may be more sensitive to these sorts of topics. Exactly. And, and actually- I'd like to start the conversation with something that really hits home for me, um, and that's the the Holocaust. Um, you know, the the I, I hate to even say the research, but the medical. I'm using you know air quotations here. The research that was done on uh, prisoners during the Holocaust, and this really hits home for me. I just I I have to say that my family was in the Holocaust. Um, on my mother's side, both grandparents were the sole survivors of the Holocaust. I never had the privilege of meeting my grandfather who passed before I was born, but my grandmother told stories um, just. I mean, stories that are really out of the pages of the worst. You you would think it's fiction, you know. It, it just such atrocities that just unspeakable. So um, you know, nothing I say can actually adequately convey these horrors. But I just wanted to let's let's start here. So during the Second World War, during the Holocaust, Nazi researchers committed these mass-scale atrocities against Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, and other prisoners. And they claimed that this was in the name of medical research. The largest German Nazi, Nazi concentration camp, the one that many people are familiar with, Auschwitz, um, witnessed Joseph Mengele's horrific experiments. And he, they, they led experiments mainly on, on children, on twins, on dwarves, people with abnormalities, and experiments centered mainly around three topics. One was the survival of, of German military personnel. Two was the testing of drugs and treatments, mainly for injuries sustained on the battlefield for German soldiers. And three was the advancement of Nazi racial and ideological goals. So, I mean, 
we, we are going to put up a link um, that will, you know, if, if you do want to read more, some details about the experiments, but I just wanted to highlight three examples. So the first is in uh, high altitude studies where they, they placed inmates into low pressure chambers that simulated altitudes as high as 68,000 feet and monitored their physiological response as they succumbed and died. Uh, obviously torturing the victims. Uh, needless to say, all of this was done without any consent. I Obviously, that goes without saying. We're going to talk a, a lot more about consent in just a bit. Another experiment was freezing experiments. So they placed victims into vats of icy water, either naked or in aviator suits, and they took others outside in the freezing cold and strapped them down naked. And doctors measured, as these patients were writhing in pain and and dying, they measured changes in their heart rate, body temperature, muscle reflexes, and other factors. Lastly, to test the effectiveness of sulfonilamide, they inflicted battlefield-like wounds in victims, and they then infected the wounds with bacteria such as streptococcus, tetanus, and gas gangrene. The doctors, again, I use that term very loosely, aggravated the resulting infection by rubbing ground glass and wood shavings into the wounds, tied off blood vessels on either side of the injury to simulate what would happen to an actual war wound. So, I mean, honestly, I'm I'm shaking as I read these things. They're so unspeakable. I could go on and on. As I said, we'll include a link. But the Holocaust, these experiments prompted something that we're going to talk about um, in, in just a bit, but the Nuremberg Code came directly out of these experiments. So we're going to talk more about that in a moment and other regulations that came out of these atrocities. The next historical example that we absolutely have to talk about is Tuskegee. And so this occurred on U.S. soil and is just such a shameful I just, we're so in in public health, this is the most, one of the most, if not the most embarrassing examples of research done in the name of public health. So in 1932, the Public Health Service and the Tuskegee Institute began a study to record the natural history of syphilis in black men. And the study lasted 40 years. The study initially involved 600 black men, and there were 399 with syphilis, this was the experimental group, and 201 who did not have syphilis, and this was the control group. And the study was conducted without the benefit of patients' informed consent. So what does this mean? The men knew that, you know, that well, they agreed to participate, but they were never given the actual details, of, you know, of what the whole purpose of the study was. So this was not true informed consent. And we're going to talk more about this in a bit. But researchers told the men that they were being treated for something called bad blood. And this was a local colloquialism at the time used to describe several ailments, including syphilis, but also anemia and fatigue. So again, that, you know, they agreed to participate, but they were not informed of the real intent. So they were never provided treatment for syphilis, even when penicillin became the the treatment of choice for syphilis in 1947. They were also never given the option to quit the study. 
So they were deceived into thinking that they were getting treatment and they were often, they, they never even knew what their true diagnosis actually was. So of the 399 male participants, 128 died of syphilis or related complications, 40 infected their wives, and 19 had children born with congenital syphilis. The death rate in the infected group was twice that of the control group. So again, this, you know, the Tuskegee syphilis study is one of the most horrific and shameful injustices to occur in the name of public health. And, you know, something that we we actually did a post on this, I don't know, Andrew, was it, was it last month or the month prior? Um, you know, we understand that this particular um, study, and there were others, but this really has, has prompted quite a bit of distrust among um, persons of color. And it's something that we we absolutely, you know, we have to discuss and we have to figure out how to instill trust among this community. So um, this is something that we're going to talk more about, but just wanted to set the stage. And Andrea, I think you're going to walk us through a couple of other uh, I- examples. Yes. Yeah. And, and you know... <laughs> For Tuskegee, I find it so striking that, you know, the official name for that study was the study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male. And, you know, obviously these black men that were participating didn't know that, right? They didn't understand that they were not actually getting treated for for this illness. And, And syphilis is caused by a bacteria. And, you know, in reality, it can be treated and cured. But once it spreads and becomes late stage or tertiary syphilis, it, you know, as you pointed out, is very often fatal. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, so two other instances that I think are worth mentioning um, is is James Marion Sims or J. Marion Sims. So these were um, these were instances that occurred in the 1840s, so during the era of slavery. Um, he is touted as the father of modern gynecology. So he is credited with developing the surgical procedure to to treat a bladder fistula, which is basically a, an opening between the bladder and the vagina. Um, it's a very debilitating medical condition. It causes urine leakage out of the vagina. Um, depending on the severity of the fistula, it can be, you know, extremely painful, debilitating, lead to infections, of course. Um, he also is credited with designing the speculum, which, um, you know, everybody that goes to the, the gynecologist is, uh, is familiar with. And he also, um, you know, is credited with the Sims position, which is a lateral recumbent position used for a variety of medical procedures. Um, the issue comes with um, the fact that he is he operated on a variety of enslaved black women without anesthesia, particularly to develop this surgical procedure to treat the bladder fistula condition. And uh, many critics 
say that, you know, his, you know, while he was credited with a lot of these kind of medical advances, um, he routinely operated on these black women without anesthesia. Now, anesthesia, particularly ether, had been developed at that point. um, But he was a proponent of the belief that black people and black women in particular um, couldn't feel pain. And so he would operate on them without appropriate anesthesia. It's reported that after these experiments that he conducted on black women in the 1840s, he he moved to New York City to open a women's hospital in the 1850s and started treating white women, but with anesthesia. Um, so of course, there's a lot of racial you know, racism, um, you know, in play with regard to these therapeutic treatments. Um, and many people have stated that he led to untold suffering by operating on these black women, um, you know, under that racist notion that black people did not feel pain. And it's, and I think it's important to mention that 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 belief is not completely gone. There are still people, you know, in global society that actually do um, still subscribe to that belief. And and I think we can say that that is in fact debunked. Um, Now, you know, this, this issue or this instance um, brings up the question of consent. Were his patients able to actually provide true consent? So this was during slaveholding eras. Um, We obviously don't agree with that. Um, The method back then was if the patient's owners provided clothing and paid their taxes, um, J. Marion Sims was able to take temporary ownership of these Black women until their treatment was completed. So, you know, the slaves really had no rights of their own, right? They were not able to perform, to provide consent. Um, You know, they could say that they wanted this procedure done, you know, because they really had no other option. Um, But slaves were a vulnerable population and aside from his actions were very subject to abuse. Um, And so the kind of critics on both sides of his legacy um, get into this argument all the time about whether his accomplishments, you know, should be wiped from the slate or, you know, do we keep his accomplishments you know, in light of the fact that, you know, there are some serious ethical and, and you know, racist affiliations with him. That's so interesting. And I know, you know, we, we have a similar conversation about that the Holocaust uh, mm-hmm. research that I mentioned earlier. Um, I, I hate to even say this, but, you know, some information w- was was gleaned from those horrific atrocities um, that, of course, you know, we, we just we can't obtain because we cannot safely conduct the experiments that they conducted then. Um, and so, yeah, that that's a real ethical quandary. You know, do we use the information um, or, you know, or, or not? And I, I don't know the answer to that. I've, <laughs> you know, um, I, I, anyway, I don't even want to touch that with a 10 foot pole right now, but that's a really important um, issue. And, and Andrew, you're all, you know, you're talking about something else that's really important that I know we're going to discuss later, uh, which is the issue issue of vulnerable populations. And so, you know, you're talking about slaves and, and obviously, thank goodness we don't have slaves today. Um, but uh, there are other vulnerable populations that are, um, that are really, um, closely watched and protected in, in medical research. So anyway, sorry to interject here, but no, no, I think, I mean, I, it's, it's a obviously <laughs> very critical topic. You know, I think, you know, in the U S obviously we don't have slaves. I know in other countries right. with, 
you know, less human protections, there are populations that are enslaved or are forced into medical procedures and things like that. Well, so, right. um, and thanks I, for saying that's why I actually hesitated when I, <laughs> if you heard right. when I said that, because it's like, you know, yeah, thank goodness in the US, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. That's not the case around the world. So, absolutely. thank you for making that point. Okay. Um, yeah. So, the last example, and of course, these are not the only examples, but um, I think they, they do a good job of highlighting some of the issues that we want to discuss is, um, is Henrietta Lacks. So if anybody has read Rebecca Skloot's book, um, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, you will likely know some of the issues surrounding this. So Henrietta Lacks was a, a 31-year-old Black woman. She was a mother of five. She went to Johns Hopkins Hospital in 1951, and, um, and this was due to unusual vaginal bleeding. And at the time in the 50s, there were very few medical institutes that black people could get medical treatment. Um, now, there was a, a very renowned gynecologist, Dr. Howard Jones. When he performed an examination, he discovered a very large malignant tumor on her cervix. So it was advanced cervical cancer. Um, she did begin treatment. Back then, the, the treatment for cervical cancer was radium. That was the best option available. So she was not withheld treatment. However, her cancer was extremely progressed. Um, a sample of that biopsy, so a, a piece of those cancer cells, um, were sent to, to Dr. George Gay's tissue culture lab. And um, he had been collecting tissue samples from all sorts of patients um, with cervical cancer, trying to better understand the mechanisms of the cells, trying to better understand the progression of cancer. Um, but all of these cells tended to die very quickly. Um, Henrietta Lacks's cells were very unique. They continued to proliferate um, and they would continue to, to do so almost indefinitely. So these cells are what we call immortal. Um, they are very characteristic of certain cancers the reason that they're useful in research is because they essentially can grow indefinitely and we can split them and we can, you know, share them and things like that. So these cells inevitably became called HeLa. So that's the first two letters of her, her name. So he for Henrietta, La for, for Lax. Um, these are the oldest and most commonly used human cell line in, in biological research. Um, I've personally used them. I'm sure every other researcher has used them. Um, um, and this line was was derived from these these cervical cancer cells from Henrietta Lacks. These are used for a vast array of research, um, looking at toxicity or the effects of different drugs, um, looking at cancer growth, looking at viruses and vaccine development, um, looking at hormone signaling, and it enables us to do these types of research in a petri dish without having to do experiments on, you know, physical humans. Um, we've been able to investigate the effects of radiation, and other poisons to study human genetics, to learn more about um, development of vaccines. Now, the issue is that none of the companies, uh, biotechnology industries, medical institutes, etc., a lot of people have profited from these cells, um, and and her family really has never gotten any sort of benefit or reimbursement, right? Anything from all of these, you know, decades and decades of research. Um, more than that, you know, 
No one has ever asked her family for consent um, after this whole story came public. Um, you know, the her medical records were released. They published the the genome of her cell, so her genetic sequence um, online. Um, after public outcry, this was removed, and that they actually eventually the family of Henrietta Lacks and um, you know biomedical institutions have come to an agreement and have re-released that for the benefit of science. You know, so so this was an issue of consent with regard to biological specimens as opposed to physically experimenting on a human, but it still is an issue of consent. Um, and so, you know, the NIH director, Francis Collins, he has, you know, signaled that he wants the research community to consider changing this, this policy document called the common rule, which we're going to get into in more detail. But um, this revision would actually require consent to be obtained from anyone from whom biological specimens are taken. So this would be any sort of biopsy, like was the case with Henrietta Lacks. Currently, to this day, even amongst all the protections we're going to discuss, there is no consent required for de-identified biological specimens obtained from clinical practice. So meaning if the identifier, the identity of the person from whom that that specimen came from um, in a clinic, so in a medical institute, is removed, they can still use it without requiring consent from that patient. That is still in practice today. Um, you know, he and others have driven to try and implement this, and, and this had failed when this common rule was last reviewed in 2018. Um, there's obviously a lot of controversy involved in this, um, but of course, this is going to be an ongoing discussion. Um, and of course, this has some, some, you know, systemic racism baked into it. So Henrietta Lacks was only able to get treatment at certain medical facilities. You know, a lot of these, this racism in science and medicine still exist, which we are, of course, going to address. Um, but as a result, many labs who do use HeLa cells have offered donations to the Henrietta Lacks Foundation, which was established by the author of that book I mentioned back in 2010. So, you know, we we just summarized four of the most infamous, uh, you know, injustices in the name of, um, of of human medical research. But there, of course, are many others. And, and we will put links to resources on our website, um, you know, for this particular episode. But really, the, the theme tends to be that people were undergoing certain treatments without providing informed consent. Um, so, you know, again, without getting into too much detail, you have the radiation experiments where people were given plutonium injections without giving um, informed consent. You have, um, well, the thalidomide studies, uh, that's slightly different, but that's, you know, the FDA did not approve thalidomide, but samples were still distributed to U.S. physicians to research its safety and efficacy on their on their patients. Um, you had the Willowbrooks state school study um, where children with severe developmental disabilities were deliberately infected with hepatitis and, and so on. So really the theme is that, you know, vulnerable populations were were taken advantage of um, or participants did not uh, provide informed consent. So these, these really are atrocities. And again, really the only silver lining to come out of these is that there is such an incredible emphasis on transparency, safety, and human protections. So 
every study, and you know, Andrea and I, we do very different types of research. Andrea does, and Andrea, I don't want to speak for you, but you're doing research in in a lab, right? Bench research, biomedical research. Whereas I'm a public health scientist, so I'm doing um, you know, health services research, health outcomes research, not in a lab. But even still, any study that involves human subjects undergoes an incredibly rigorous and thorough review to assure the protection of research subjects. There's also an emphasis on inclusion and participation of minorities in clinical research and research studies specifically assessing the health of minorities, including healthcare disparities and equity. And that's a slightly different topic that we will absolutely cover on on a future episode. But I I wanted to start talking about some of the regulations that that came out of these, these atrocities that we just described. The first is the Nuremberg Code. So this was developed to try the Nazi war criminals who led these horrific experiments on their victims, you know, again, under this guise of medical research. And the three basic elements of the Nuremberg Code are voluntary informed consent, favorable risk-benefit analysis, and right to withdraw without repercussions. So any study that I've ever designed, you have to detail this. Really, you have to spell out exactly what you're doing. You have to provide a copy of informed consent that details the purpose of the study, um, what the study will entail. You have to to detail that you've conducted a risk-benefit analysis and that the benefits of participating far outweigh the risks and that participants are informed of the potential risks and potential benefits. And you must inform participants that they can withdraw at any time without repercussions. So the Nuremberg Code really set the stage and became the foundation for subsequent ethical codes and research regulations. So to follow, in 1964, the World Medical Association released the Declaration of Helsinki. And this, again, built upon these principles outlined in the Nuremberg Code. And the purpose was to provide guidance to physicians uh, engaged in clinical research And the main focus was the responsibilities of researchers for the protection of of research subjects. And it's worth noting that these things are not set in stone. They're updated. The Declaration of Helsinki was actually later revised in 1975. And as we move on in time, these things are only getting more stringent. So... Next, um, Congress's first legislation to protect the rights and welfare of human subjects was the National Research Act of 1974. And this established the National Commission for Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research. And this included the Belmont Report. And anyone who's done research has read the Belmont Report and its three fundamental principles for conducting human subjects research are respect for persons, beneficence, and justice. Next, and sorry if this is a boring history lesson, but I I, I think this, I'm like geeking out over this. I love this. Um, I think these regulations are are interesting and they're obviously super necessary. Um, Next, and Andrea, you touched on this. You talked Mm -hmm. about the the common rule. So you may want to weigh in here, but basically it was 
established in 1981, and it's a rule of ethics in the U.S. regarding biomedical and behavioral research, again, involving human subjects. And it's it's just the baseline standard of ethics by which any government-funded research in the U.S. is held. Nearly all U.S. academic institutions hold their researchers to these statements of rights, regardless of funding. And again, the common rule um, was another regulation that was updated and revised uh, as, as recently as 20. 18. Yeah. And Jess, you know, this, I know we're going to talk about IRB, the Institutional Review Board, but, but, you know, this is obviously, you know, the, the minimum that has to be kind of adhered to. Um, And, you know, as I mentioned, the, you know, it's continually reviewed and revised. And, you know, something that many researchers are pushing for is this de-identified informed consent, um, meaning that even if a patient specimen, you know, has no identifying characteristics, we don't know who it came from, um, we still kind of preemptively get consent, say, hey, if this ends up, you know, being used in the lab as a sample, you know, do we have consent to use that? Currently, it it doesn't include that, but the hope is that with the next next revision, it will include that. That's a really important point. I, I just wanted to mention one more uh, regulation or protection that's in place. And this is the, I think you referenced this earlier, the Office of Human Research Protections, OHRP. Again, anyone who's done research is familiar with OHRP, um, but OHRP oversees Title 45, Part 46 of the Code for Federal Regulations, which pertains to human subjects research. And so this office indirectly oversees human subjects research through local IRBs. And again, IRBs are institutional review boards. And we're going to talk a lot more about um, IRBs. IRBs, and, and um, Andrew, I don't know if, if, if you've been very involved in the IRB process, but I've you know designed and carried out dozens, if not, I don't know, hundreds at, the, at this point of, um, of public health and, and, and clinical research studies. And I have gone through the IRB process. And I I think this is so funny. You know, I always tell people, I find that people are so hung up on the statistical analysis part of research. And that seems to be the the scary, intimidating part of research, the actual analysis. I actually would argue that that's the (laughs) easy part. You know, the, the type of data that you're collecting will dictate the type of statistical test that you run. What's far more difficult is the design of research. And, you know, the design of research with regard to figuring out a way to, to, to increase the, maximize the validity and the generalizability of your findings, of course, but also to make sure that you're really adhering to all aspects of, of, of these protections that we've outlined. And the very first thing that you have to consider is informed consent. And again, you know, Andrea, you you talked about this. Participants in research, it can't just be that you're agreeing to participate in, in research. You have to be made explicitly aware of the purpose of research, any potential risks of research, all of the processes that the research entails. And you have to be, um, again, explicitly aware that participation is 100% voluntary and you can drop out at any time without any repercussions. And Jess, I want to, you know, note, because obviously, you know, my research is dealing with 
biological samples, but, um, you know, we do have to go through the IRB process for approval of those sorts of research studies as well, particularly if you're not de-identifying those. And even in those cases, when it's something like a a tissue biopsy or a blood draw or things like that, um, the informed consent process is still absolutely critical um, when you're going through that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you know, informed consent, and, and Andrew, I know we want to talk about a few other issues here, but I think that something else that we have to talk about here, and it's something that we we touched on earlier, are vulnerable populations. So, you know, earlier you were talking about slaves. Um, we were talking about Black people uh, who were not informed of, you know, the whole purpose of their participation in the Tuskegee study. Um, vulnerable populations today include pregnant women, children, ethnic or racial minorities, non-English speakers, the economically disadvantaged, prisoners, the elderly, the homeless, adults with diminished capacity, those with HIV, and those with other chronic health conditions, including severe mental illness. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, Jess, you, you bring up a really good point because, you know, we talk about this, this concept of informed consent and, and informed consent is not simply having someone read a document and sign off, right? If they're not competent, they're not, you know, mentally able to understand the implications of what they're signing off in, then that's not uh, informed consent. Right. And if you're doing a study, let's say, among um, uh, Spanish-speaking participants, but you're handing them a consent form in English, and English is their second language, that's not proper informed consent because there are likely, um, you know, things that are lost in translation. And so you have to provide them with an informed consent form in their primary language to ensure that they're fully understanding what it is that they're being asked to participate in. Mm Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So Andrea, you know, I I know we're kind of all over the place here. There are so many different things we want to talk about, but did you want to talk about demographics and research? Yeah, I think it's an important thing to talk about because of Tuskegee in in particular. So, you know, we talked a lot about, um, you know, and Jess gave a really great summary of of many of the key historical documents and regulations for human subjects research. And, and, you know, some of those require now that, you know, we have inclusion and participation of minorities, but also we have to make sure that clinical trials or human subjects research are representative of 
the population being studied. Um, whereas with something like Tuskegee, they singled out black men and they didn't provide, um, you know, the the true scope of the research. Um, and that's really bred a lot of distrust, right? You know, black people in particular don't want to feel like they're being human guinea pigs. And so when we look at clinical trial data, even with the COVID-19 vaccine trials, we have demographic breakdowns. We know the proportion of, you know, men versus women. We know the age demographics. We know the the race and ethnicity demographics. We know the breakdown of who has pre-existing conditions, who is considered healthy. And all of that is designed to obviously accurately represent the population at large, but also ensure that we're not singling out specific demographics and, you know, unfairly or, you know, disproportionately using them in human subjects research. Absolutely. That's such an important point. And I think, Andrew, we should definitely have another episode um, that that talks specifically about that issue. Yeah. Um, but we're just setting the stage here. So another thing we wanted to talk about is coercion. So Andrea and I, again, we do different types of research. So I'll just give you an example from research that I've conducted, which um, often involves collecting primary data um, via surveys. So if you've ever participated in a survey or let's say in a focus group, you'll you'll note that there's usually some sort of um, incentive, some sort of, uh, you know, either you get a gift card or some, or some sort of financial incentive to participate because otherwise people are often hesitant to, you know, to take the time to, to fill out a survey, let's say. So when we're designing, when we're uh, writing our, our application and submitting it to the IRB, we have to make very clear that we've considered coercion and that we're not setting that financial incentive too high so that it could be construed as coercion. So, you know, you, you have to make the case that, let's say, you know, a, a $10 gift card, um, that, that that's an appropriate amount and that people aren't feeling pressure to participate or being coerced to participate in research. Um, I say $10, but that that's, <laughs> that's actually <laughs> typically a pretty ac- accepted amount of compensation. But let's say offering $100, that's probably a better example um, that, you know, particularly among people of lower socioeconomic status, that is, that's hard to turn down, right? So we want to make sure that we're not coercing people to participate. Yeah, it's a great point. And I can say, you know, I've personally participated in a variety of human subjects research as a participant. And, you know, it's, it's, it's usually something like that. It's, you know, you participate, you get $50 for every, you know, site visit or whatever it happens to be. Um, I did some physiology studies, I did some behavioral um, studies. And, you know, it's, it's kind of somewhere in that realm where it's, you know, it's a nice little bonus, but it's not so much to, you know, again, disproportionately recruit vulnerable populations. Um, you know, it's interesting because obviously the research that I conduct is using, you know, biological specimens. And when I was in graduate school, I remember very distinctly that, um, at least at my institute, graduate students were not able to provide samples. So a lot of my research, I'm an immunologist, so I was dealing a lot with immune cells and we would take primary immune cells from, from human donors. Um, so taking blood samples, harvesting the immune cells from them and, and using them for a variety of research. And um, I could didn't donate blood for my own experiments, but other graduate students at the school also couldn't donate blood um, because since the study was funded by my lab and by my, you know, by the school that we were technically students of, um, it was viewed as coercion that, you know, we would be donating samples, you know, 
because we were feeling pressure from the institute to do so. So it was something where you couldn't even ask, um, you know, another student or even yourself to donate uh, because of that issue. That's another really good example um, of coercion. And yes, as as a student, you know, you'd we want to make sure that students wouldn't think that either, you know, participation would be rewarded or that let's say you did participate, but then you dropped out, that there would then be, you know, repercussions to dropping out. So that's a really good example. Yeah. And I think it, I think it underscores the really diverse spectrum of coercion, right? It's not, it's not so cut and dry, you know, you're getting paid a lot of money or you're not. It's, there's a lot of subtleties to coercion. And, and, and of course, IRB and all of these regulations take all of that into account. Absolutely. So, Another thing I just wanted to point out that even before you think about submitting an application to the IRB to conduct a, a, a research study that involves human subjects, you first have to provide evidence of certification in human research subjects protections, and you have to complete coursework. And typically coursework, um, well, actually not typically, it always covers at a bare minimum the following. So courses that describe the history and importance of human subjects protections, um, that identify research activities that involve human subjects. So you have to be able to discern, you know, what actually constitutes human subjects research, um, the risks a research project might pose to participants, understanding how to minimize the risks posed by a research project, describing additional protections needed for vulnerable populations, understanding additional issues that should be considered for international research, describing appropriate procedures for recruiting research participants and obtaining informed consent, identifying the different committees that monitor human subjects protections. And again, you know, if you're doing research, let's say at a hospital or a university, you'll have a local IRB, but then there are also protections at the state and the federal level. And of course, understanding the importance of study design in the protection of research participants. So Andrea, you know, I know that we wanted to just touch upon a related issue here. Um, and, you know, of course, here we're setting the stage. And, and again, we're we're recognizing that there's this distrust of, of science and, and the medical establishment. But now we're in the midst of a pandemic. And, you know, not to get too off course here, obviously, we are, you know, we, we now have vaccines available. And we recognize that vaccines are the safe path <laughs> to, you know, to getting out of this mess, right? And so I think that a lot of the things that we described here, you know, these past injustice, injustices have fed a lot of the distrust, right? And so we recognize that, again, you know, persons of color, they're, Well, I'll just say, you know, there was a study done by the Kaiser Family Foundation that found that, and and this actually was done in December, found that 35% of Black Americans said that they would probably not get the vaccine if it was deemed safe by scientists and was free. And of those respondents, 71% had concerns about possible side effects, 50% uh, were scared that they would get COVID from the vaccine, and 48% reported having general mistrust. So again, you know, these findings, I think they really, they align with other studies and they underscore the importance of combating this distrust in government and the nation, the, our, our, our country's history of racism in medical research. Yeah. And I think just, you know, Some of that is something that we may be able to address by making 
these sorts of things we're discussing today transparent, you know, letting people understand and be aware of, yes, there is some really horrific history here, but we have addressed these. We have very stringent measures in place for human subjects research in the current, you know, day and age. And we ensure that we have, you know, diverse demographics included to address all of those fears, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are simply not aware of that, right? Right. Totally agree. And, you know, Andrea, I guess, I don't know if it's the elephant in the room, but but we are not persons of color. And so we have to be mindful of that. You know, when we're when we're disseminating this information, that's great, but maybe we're not getting through to certain you know, communities. And so we have to think about ways to, um, you know, to inform community leaders, um, perhaps um, religious leaders mm-hmm. who who might be, you know, able to get through to these communities better than we are. So Absolutely. that's another consideration. I just wanted to note that there was uh, actually just a couple of days ago, an even more recent study from Kaiser. It was very promising. Um, we're actually releasing a post on this today. Um, so by the time you're listening to this, this post will be available. Available um, that shows that we we have successfully moved the needle, and more people are are likely to get the vaccine when it's available to them, and and that's great. But there still exist these racial and and economic disparities, and 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 th- again, th- this just underscores the importance of having this conversation, and and we recognize that it, there's no easy answer here, right? Um, and perhaps we're we're not the ones to deliver the message, um, but. But we'd love to be a part of that discussion and, and figure out ways to, um, you know, to allay these concerns and to rebuild some of that, the trust that's been lost. Absolutely. All right, Andrea, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, do you want to take us home? <laughs> sure. So, you know, I know this is a, a bit of a heavy topic, um, but we feel it's very necessary and it's really pertinent to um, a lot of the kind of in real time clinical trials that the general public is is you know seeing um, emerge. So we hope that this has been useful in kind of enlightening the history of atrocities in science and medicine and and how we've addressed these. So thank you for joining us today. We hoped you learned a thing or two. If you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We also have our merch site live. And if you haven't heard, we launched a very new piece of merch. So check that out at our website at www.unbiasedscipod.com. There you can also find all of our previous episodes, links to all of this, the references that we um, discuss on each episode, drop us a donation, or even leave a question for our Herd from the Herd. Next week, we are going to discuss a bit about virology basics, virus mutations, and what it means for COVID-19 as we are hearing a lot of new information emerge about these new variants. Um, We, of course, will continue to provide ongoing updates about COVID-19 on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow those on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no-nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.